Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 24 February 2024. So we're going to do something um, that I occasionally uh, offer to our lecture audience, and that is <laughs> we're going to bracket off our specific discussions of uh, published research and offer a sort of interlocution between myself and all you folks that listen to the podcast um, to describe, I think, what I could call biochemical event ontologies by synthesizing chemical and biological premises, of course, via the dialectical method. So here in the forest on this Saturday afternoon, the head full of Mozart, uh, let's proceed. Chemical thermodynamics can be discovered within the framework of classical metaphysics. The state function enthalpy, for example, is a measure of the heat content of a substance at constant pressure. Enthalpy, that was symbolized with a capital H, is the total energy of a system, including its total kinetic and potential energy. Delta H is the change in enthalpy when reactants go to products. So delta H equals the H of products minus the H of reactants. That's the same as saying delta H equals H final minus H initial. Now, we do that because we can't measure enthalpy in and of itself because of its status as a unique function. So delta H can be, delta H can be either positive or negative. Positive delta H indicates an endothermic reaction. Uh, that is, the enthalpy of products is greater than the enthalpy of reactants. And then negative delta H indicates an exothermic reaction. That is, the enthalpy of the products is less than the enthalpy of the reactants. Now, Plato, dear Plato, suggests pure matter is nothing. In particular, he called it non-being. Non-being being the privation of all form. Now, this is obviously different than his student, who apparently didn't pay attention in class, uh, and that was Aristotle, who thought there was such a thing as pure matter. He definitely made a mistake there. Aristotle made several mistakes. <clears throat> Plato, not so much. Now, existence is the process of becoming, and being is the final actualized participation in Platonic forms. This is all Platonic metaphysics, right? Now, in my view, uh, there's a lot of argument to all of that. I'm not a platonic form uh, aficionado, nor do I follow that in my metaphysics, although it's a very good place to start from. But in my view, pure enthalpy, if we discuss it, is where nothing happens. So again, I'm deriving this from my understanding of chemical thermodynamics. So that delta is the becoming and pure entropy finally becomes that actualized, individualized participation in the form. 
which we, we could call being. So entropy is also a state function. And the path to its new equilibrium is without fixed space-time constraints. Very important distinction between that and enthalpy. However, the nature of entropy in an open system, that is a system that is in direct contact with its surroundings, for example, an existing individual, is that it increases, entropy increases with time until a new thermodynamic equilibrium is reached, presumably a higher equilibrium than from the start. But at this point, delta S is flat zero. Now, thermodynamics following the second law would require that the, again, existing individual is forever closing in on disorder, but can indeed must <laughs> reach balance with its environment once the interactions at the boundary have gone to thermodynamic equilibrium or near to it. This would be a state of non-flux, and if we were to follow, say, human interactions, no net experience should occur at this delta S of zero. In fact, if we're at thermodynamic equilibrium, the system is no longer living, because you need to be far from equilibrium for living systems to function. Okay, made this point before several times. I don't think I need to argue it at this juncture. Now, the problem with this application, I always see problems with my own um, adaptations of learned understandings of whatever it is I'm studying. Problem with the application of the second law to this, what could be called a rational psychological example, is that we do not find that result at all. Indeed, the existing individual is constantly in flux. And I just alluded to that, otherwise it'd be dead. And he's in flux with his environment, positioned as it were by what we can derive from Heidegger's term, Dasein. And Dasein, translated roughly, means being there. I would say becoming there, okay? For reasons I already explained to you about thermodynamics. I don't think Heidegger knew much about thermodynamics. <clears throat> I might be wrong, but it didn't seem that way from his writings. Now, to resolve this, remember that human experience is always in, as all living systems, dynamic disequilibria. This is not simply a tautology, though. Disequilibria is a state of change. Hence the delta term in the delta S, for example, while equilibria is the ratio of products over reactants in simple first order elimination kinetics. So the delta is a term used to describe dynamics, while the S entropy term is used to describe the distribution of energy and matter within a system distribution, right? Notice I smuggled in there a little bit about um, quantum and special and general relativity. Now, if I'm right to assume these basic propositions I'm throwing out to you, because remember doing a dialectic, these might be true or untrue 
but they are sound either way, because I think I'm generating good logical arguments, then the real issue of entropy in living system is not the S term, but rather the delta term. That's the most important part of that equation. When you think about the Gibbs free energy equation, delta H minus T delta S, the deltas are what matter. So as with enthalpy, so goes with entropy. My argument, right? Now, the delta term. But the delta term is dimensionless. It's a modal operator. So what are we defining it? We're defining it as a metaphysical, certainly not a physical state. So if the measure of entropy in uh, and of an existing individual isn't a pure physical state, then I guess I'm arguing it can't be reduced to mere phenomena, and therefore must fit into the transcendental category, bracketing off all sensorial application called the noumena. Now, when we examine the root sources of the term noumena, it's my opinion, well, it's not my opinion, it's my dialectical analysis that we first find it as apiron. I've mentioned this before in lecture. Apiron term comes from the, Mil the Milesian pre-Socratic philosopher, our old friend Anaximander. Apiron is translated as not bounded, or if you like, infinite, or if you like, dimensionless, or if you like, strictly timelessness. Okay, no delta T. Now, since Apera is clearly a non-material yet event-sourced event concept, right? we can ultimately define it as becoming to being, where being is a verb, right? being. So free energy can be substituted for freedom of the will in this thermodynamic equation, while enthalpy stands in for shared, oh, say, love. And entropy could be pure individuality. So the infinite struggle between individuals maintains existence, and in the end, entropy requires what? It requires homeostasis, which is mortality, okay? Because pure homeostasis is death of the living system. Now, knowledge of this existence, you know I would prefer to be call, talking about instance here where free will comes in, but for purposes of this short narrative on this Saturday afternoon, I'm going to bracket that whole thing off, all of my argument for instance. And let's just say knowledge of this existence provides being in the world, okay? And being in the world is necessarily becoming for reasons I've already now argued for. So I say that this is all endojective. That means internally derived because it is the individual who must assign himself to his internal knowledge base. Knowledge base that is heavily informed by ethics, 
and in this way perpetuating his own moral becoming in the world. So, again, follow along here if you like. Dasein becomes the delta in the delta S and the delta H terms. When you think about delta S, think about the second law of thermodynamics. And, of course, that's all going to be universally obtained in the universe has been described by modern research. So the universe is leading to, in a way, an existing individual with its endojective worldview. So the cosmos becomes the individual, or if you like, the individual transforms into the cosmos. Okay, with this, this is just logically following through on these principles. So any endojective apprehension, that means grasping, of cognitive accessions would serve only to legitimize a composite general supposition of what, for the individual, is an ethical consideration. And as such, all the work for inward ownership of one's personal moral fiber. And all of that is only on loan from the self-aggrandizing and mutually obsequious, the they. Okay? That means the crowd or everyone else, not as individuals, but as a they. Because that's how we occur in nature, right? Going with the whole Heideggerian concept of um, the individual and they, right? Now, since delta is the modal operator that stands to arbitrate entropy, the teleological framing seems to necessitate free energy derivatization for becoming an existing individual, since life cannot be generated ex nihilo via any kind of evolutionary means. So the establishment of a nuclear-centered genome. Now I'm moving to the other side of the dialectic. I'm going to start, we talked about chemistry there. Now we're going to start talking about biology. So, becoming an existing individual since life cannot be generated ex nihilo, the evolutionary means me occur, occurs to me that the establishment of a nuclear-centered genome with an equally necessary but far reduced mitochondrial genome presents a regulatory problem to the eukaryotic cell. So why is that? Well, the mammalian system uses the plasma membrane as a platform to communicate in traffic with the external milieu. And that trafficking includes lipids, carbohydrates, proteins, nucleic acids, along with their subunit components, including, of course, fatty acid, prenolipid, glucose, amino acids, nucleotides, plus, of course, organic and inorganic ions. And I haven't exhausted all the different possible event substances in the cell, but I think I've covered most of them. So the collaboration between the two genomes, mitochondrial nuclear, in the eukaryote non-plant requires a tight molecular partitioning of events, especially since the mitochondria is also the source of bioenergetic equivalents and certain metabolic pathways uniquely organized into that subcellular organelle. Now, 
It's postulated that the mitochondria likely arose from an early endosymbiotic event, wherein an alpha protobacteria fused with a proto-eukaryotic cell. Now, that this event occurred without a specific mechanism other than the mechanics of membrane fusion facilitated by mechanodynamin-like proteins embedded in the lipid fluid mosaic, and that this unique event was stabilized and then, I guess, permanently resolved for only some proto-eukaryotic cell types goes, in my opinion, largely non-disputed in research science, regardless that attempts to reproduce that event in controlled laboratory settings have never been demonstrated. Okay, so I just want you to be aware of that. Probably most of you are. Or if you don't, believe me, go into the literature and you will discover this. Okay. Now, one component of the theory of innocent biosis that goes without clear physiological justification is how the proto-eukaryotic cell differed from other such life forms prior to that innocent event. Notwithstanding all these logical and empirical deficits, <laughs> the fusion of cells and organelles do occur often in nature, so there's no, I guess, apodictic experimental evidence to rule out this endosymbiotic theory of eukaryotic cell evolution. Although I will say the postulate itself is really assertoric and it might fall into a realm of what I could call scientific paralogisms, okay? Just to cover off um, the right way to deal with a logical argument. Now, there are classical theories for eukaryotic evolution that use phylogenetics of the nuclear genome to support these hypothetical deductions. Let me check my time here. Oh, yeah, we're doing well. Great. We might actually finish this. So, <laughs> eukaryotic organisms appeared in the fossil record about uh, 2 billion years ago, which is about 1.5 billion years after prokaryotes. The theory suggests, and the symbiotic theory suggests, that these 1.5 billion years were, I guess, necessary for eukaryogenesis or that the early eukaryotic organisms, whatever they happen to be, the original eukaryotic organisms, I wouldn't argue for yeast or fungi, but maybe, or green algae, maybe, photosynthetic there, of course, needing the other genome, maybe they didn't leave a fossil record until then. That's a big if, right? So I don't know why that would be. It's possible. Unicellular or multi or, um microorganisms might not leave much of a fossilized footprint, right? That would be a good argument, I guess. Now, <clears throat> the problem arises from all issues of cellular and molecular evolution. Why can't these processes that we now describe as good theories be replicated in the lab? Main reason is somatic rejection. That's a monumental barrier for such events. Consider the protobacteria Rhizobia, if you don't think so, rhizobia can uh, form symbiotic relationships with the Fabaceae, chloriferous higher plant root, right? We know this. Now, they are symbiontic, not endosymbiontic. 
Arctic, and yet these symbioses occur regularly in the soil. They do not progress, even though there would be strong selective pressure to do so, since rhizobacteria fix atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia, which can be used directly for amino acid biosynthesis, which is what happens in the endosymbiotic association of rhizobia at the roots of Fabaceae. Okay. But there, why wouldn't that selection pressure then allow for an endosymbiosis into the plant so that nitrogen fixation is now actually a component of biochemical reality for those higher plants? Okay. It doesn't happen that way. So there are two pro prokaryotic, pre-eukaryotic organisms that could have been the source of the endosymbiotic uh, initial event. And what are they? Of course, they're archaean bacteria. So, theory requires that eukaryotes are monophyletic, phyletic, excuse me. What does that mean? That means that plants, animals, algae, fungi, and unicellular eukaryotes, everything, everything is a eukaryote descended from a common ancestor, which uh, they call in molecular evolution, LECA, L-E-C-A, which means last eukaryotic common ancestor. Gee, that's real clever, I guess not. Since since this biological paralogism demands, the reason, the whole reason that this is going back to one common ancestor, this biological paralogism, that's my caveat for this, demands that eukaryogenesis happen only once in time. See, this is the way you can hand wave and say, that's why we don't see it now. See? No, but there's no predicate or antecedent of why we don't, you know, why, why I would make that statement, see? Not based on all of the other predicates I just laid out for you. So my question would be, why is that? You should ask that. Well, here's why. As I said, we cannot reproduce the event, and it has been tried, nor does it happen spontaneously in nature. And just again, rhizobia are just one paradigm. Uh, there are many, many, many. So there is actually doubt that LECA, L-E-C-A, evolved from prokaryotes. But to speculate, continue to speculate, if it did occur, it came from bacteria or archaea. Okay, fine. Current eukaryotes are like what we would call a chimera genetically because the genes are from both types of prokaryote, archaea and bacteria, and yet they coexist and are expressed as they're transcribed all from the eukaryotic nucleus. So here's some examples in, that are in the literature. Genes involved in DNA recombination, DNA replication, DNA repair, as well as transcription and translation are similar to those genes you find in current archaea. While the genes associated with metabolic pathways, such as bioenergetics, and some of the syntheses of amino acids and lipids and nucleotides are more similar to the genes you find in current extant bacteria. Although I will argue lipid metabolism functions often extra transcriptionally and translationally, that means without the efficient a priori cause and support of nascent gene expression since many interconversions of those lipids within a membrane can occur simply to, due to free energy alterations obtained by the hydrophobic effect 
Hello, entropy and enthalpy. Let me check my time. Okay, we still have time. Great, this is excellent. So let's get, let's see if we can finish this now. There's more I could say about all this hypothesis, but the purpose of this short narrative I'm doing comes back to the mitochondrial intersymbiotic event. Allow me to proceed with that thread. It can be asserted that the specialization of mitochondria as respiratory organelles is, of course, reflected in their endomembranous structure, right? Mitochondrial inner membrane invaginates into specialized subcompartments, which we call cristae. And those are one of the molecular events afforded by, as you recall from the previous mosaic, anionic glycerophospholipid geometrical curvature dynamics. Yes. Now, of course, the mitochondrial contact site and cristae-lipid organizing mechanics organize around certain proteins like the F1, F0 ATP synthase and the synthase peptide oligomer subunits in particular, all of which comprise the morphological features that well conform for cristae organization. Now, whereas ATP synthase oligomers bend cristae membranes at their rims to produce these curvilinear shapes, the ionic and hydrophobic character of the lipid molecular species facilitate cristae junctions and contact sites that, of course, compartmentalize, stably anchor, and maintain cristae within the mitochondrial double unit membrane. So you have a protein-lipid molecular interaction that seems to be well-conserved across phylogenetically diverse eukaryotes. Now, to further support the endosymbiotic origin, uh, origin of uh, mitochondria from some predetermined alpha proteobacterium, you can say there is some molecular evidence when we look at membrane organizational similarities. Mitochondrial cristae, which represent the biochemically specialized inner membrane structures, play a necessary role, of course, in what? Electron transport chain organization, which is required for proton translocation and electron transfer, right? Cristae morphology due to the presence of diphosphatidylglycerol, which is cardiolipin, presents sufficient enthalpic and entropic forces to produce free energy-driven negative curvature by the interdigitation with anionic phospholipids, also covered in last mosaic. This ordered micro-compartmentalization obtains the individual cristae proteolipid junctions, which will ultimately organize into tubular membrane structures that populate the inner mitochondrial membrane into the subdomain inner boundary membrane connected directly to the cristae membrane. So these membrane cristae domains, as provided by the lipid component of direct contact with polybasic amino acid residues of inner membrane structural aqueous electron carrier mechanisms, then couple to the chemiosmotically accommodated proton motive force. Thus, a key feature overall, even though I gave you good evidence there for some symbiotic theory, of accepted biological evolution, while not predisposed to evidentiary or rational contradiction, still remains an undisputed, indeed canonical foundation, even though it cannot be reproduced in the lab nor the entire process observed in real time in the natural world. So, that's all I had to say this Saturday afternoon while the fire burns in the wood stove. 
Um, I will um, provide whatever um, references I can think about, but mostly this came from a synthesis that occurred by spending many hours listening to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I'll also put that in the show notes, some selected pieces. Thank you very much for listening. When we meet again, which might not be tomorrow, Sunday, for various good reasons, but on Monday, I will present you either a new biomedical portrait or a new mosaic. I haven't decided which, because I have to compose them. All right. So, humbly, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. I know I spoke rather fast there because I wanted to get it all in. Hopefully, it made some kind of sense. It made sense when I wrote it anyway. Um, wishing you a pleasant Saturday night, hopefully with the ones you love. And, of course, bye for now.